Good morning again. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. We are continuing our study, our work through of the book of Colossians. What a blessing it's been. It's been a blessing to me. I pray that it's been a blessing to you all as well. I think one of the things that we often happens when we study the Word of God is that we, we can get bogged down, and that, maybe that's not even the right word, but we can become so focused on the trees that we, we forget about the forest. And as I was preparing this message, I kept thinking in my mind, you know, we, we've zoomed in, if you could imagine Google Zoom, you know, you zoom in and we've looked at the, the great oak that is the deity of humanity of Christ. And we looked at the great elm tree that is our, right, our union with him. How we're complete. And we talked about that last week. How that's Paul's answer to error in philosophy. Is the truth in Jesus Christ. The truth that we have. And then our completeness in Him. Our union that we have in Him. But what I want to do. Before we dig into this particular section. The verses basically 11 through 15. I want to show you. And make sure you're following along Paul's argument. Because it's great for us to zoom in and talk about these great excuse me, theological and spiritual truths, but if you're not following Paul's argument, then you're not going to be able to refute the error that Paul's saying and he's even writing this for. And so one thing I want to draw your attention to is that Paul, in chapter 1, verses 13, basically through 23, he's talking about Christ is supreme. Right After introductions and talking about prayer for these believers, he says that Christ is supreme over all things, all of creation, all of new creation. Okay? And then 24 through 29, he basically talks about how it's the focus of his ministry and the focus of the church is the Word of God, the truth revealed about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, the gospel. And then in verses 1 through 5, he talks about how Christ is supreme, the, the knowledge of God's mystery is, is what governs our lives, right? And then he goes into, brings us into this section. And this is one long section in the Greek, verses 6 through 15, in which he addresses Christ as sufficient for us. And he basically lays out two commands, right? He says in verse 6, As you've received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. In other words, live out what you know. Right? It's pretty simple. Right? The word walk, perpeteo, is used multiple times. Paul loves that word, especially in Ephesians. Walk, live out what you know. Right? And then the other command is to be warned, to be wary. He says, verse 7, he says, oh, excuse me, in verse 8, see, no one takes you captive. Right? That no one takes you captive. See to it is basically one word in the Greek. It's watch out, be watchful. Okay? So the two commands in this whole section, verses 6 through 15, are, are walk like a Christian, based on what you know, and be wary. Okay? And then he goes on to explain, well, how can you be watchful and wary? And that's what we talked about last week. He said you can be watchful and wary because Christ is sufficient. Verse 9, in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You, Christ is God. He is the truth, right? That's the answer. How can we be watchful and wary against the world's philosophical systems, right? False religions, false teaching, right? 
the worldview and the world the way it exists, it seeks to pollute and corrupt our minds. What, what can we do? Well, we know, first of all, that Jesus Christ is God, right? It's an exclusivity of truth that he claims for himself. And then he says in verse 10, and we talked about this last week, that you in him, you have been made complete, right? So Jesus is God, he's fully God, fully man, and you are in him, in union with him, and you have everything that you need, you're not lacking, okay? So when it comes to to false teaching, and it comes to the world philosophical systems that are an affront to God's truth, Christ is God, and you are in him, Right? You're complete, you're full, everything you need. And we talked about how your identity is bound up in Jesus Christ. So Paul's following, this is, so you're following along in Paul's argument. This is what he's making against these false teachers. Okay? And then as we get into this morning, as we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about what Christ has done. Now, if, if we are in Him and we are complete, how does that happen? Right? So if you can imagine in your mind, Paul loves to do these, these long run-on sentences. Right? In the Greek, I would draw you a diagram, but I don't have a diagram. So in your mind, don't you think about a stair step, right? So you have the two commands, right? So walk, be wary. And then he goes on to describe, he said, he goes on to describe what it means to be wary. And that's you can be wary by knowing that Jesus Christ is God and that you are in him. And then he goes on to describe, okay, what does it mean to be in him? What does it mean to be complete, right? So, and he lays out two things, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. In verses 11 through 13, he says, you have new life in Christ. And 13 through 15, he says, you have victory in Christ, right? So he's describing how you have been made complete, how you are in union, and what that union means, how you're in union with Christ, Okay. I remember when I first moved to California, I my had some some issues with my my Nissan or Nissan, and it, it was a relatively new car. It was a few years old, and uh, I remember you know you go to a new place, you don't know where to go. Where's a good mechanic, right? Because mechanics have that reputation, kind of like lawyers. You know, you never know what you're going to get. So you know, I I, I looked up on the internet because the internet's always truthful, right? So I looked up on the internet and. And I got some good reviews on this one guy, and I went to his, went to his place, had my car towed there, and um, he did a bunch of work, two days. And I'm calling him going, hey, you said, you said this work would be done yesterday. Oh, almost done, almost done. Well, he gives me the bill, and the bill's like $1,200. Now, originally, he had told me it's probably going to be about 1000 So I just look at him, and I'm like, well, I'm not paying $1,200. I'm sorry. That's not what you told me. I need to know what you did. I want you to walk me through what you did to make my car whole again. What did you do to to say you completed this work? So tell me what you did. Walk me through it line by line, right? I even brought in a friend of mine to look. And now, I don't know to this day. I get get to heaven. I'll ask the Lord, did he actually rip me off or not? I'm not sure. The car worked. But uh, I left with that feeling of, you know, just kind of dirtiness. Like, I think I got ripped off and I'm not sure. But I wanted to know, what did he do, right? Well, Paul describes what Jesus did here to make us complete in him. So let's go ahead and read the text and you guys will see how it folds out, opens up for, for us and uh, as Apostle Paul intended. So we'll start back in verse 8 so you can get the whole train of thought. See that what no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, 
according to the elementary principles of the war, world, excuse me, rather than Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 11, And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, first of all, when you look at this, you say, well, what in the wild world of sports does circumcision have to do with what we've been talking about? Paul says, well, I'm complete, and I'm in him I'm complete. Well, Paul is describing what happened. He's describing with using a visual, physical picture of an inward reality. Right? He, he mentions circumcision and baptism, two things that we physically can understand but describe an inward spiritual reality. Right? Some spiritual realities, how do you describe conversion? How do you describe union with Christ? How do you describe regeneration? Well, Paul uses two physical realities to describe what God has done. And he begins with circumcision. See, circumcision for God's people was a sign that set them apart. Right? But it was given to Abraham after his salvation in Genesis 15. Paul makes this argument in Romans that, that it's not the circumcision. And the Jews believe that because they were the people of God, because of the physical act of circumcision, that they were God's people. And then they basically were guaranteed eternal life. Well, Jesus obviously condemns that in the Gospels. And Paul makes the argument in Romans that it's not circumcision. Circumcision was always meant to be an outward sign of an inward, renewed heart. Okay? So circumcision couldn't save you, but your faith in Christ is what saves you. Right? So Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses tells Israelites, he says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and stiffen your necks no more. See, God, what He wanted was a circumcised heart, right? He wanted a heart that was, what, repentant. He wanted a heart that had been made new, right? Deuteronomy 30, 30, excuse me, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and your hearts of your descendants. Jeremiah 4, 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your hearts. Ezekiel 44, 7, in addition to all your other abominations, you brought in foreigners with uncircumcised in both heart and flesh to occupy my sanctuary. So over and over we see in the Old Testament, circumcision was not just a physical act, but it was the act of conversion in the heart, right? We're talking about a spiritual reality where God comes in and he removes the old nature And you're regenerated to new life. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about regeneration. That's what circumcision is a picture of. God coming in and and cutting away the old nature. And then he replaces it with a new nature. right? A new nature that can obey him. right? Romans 2.29 But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. 
and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Right? It's the stripping away of our old sinful nature, our old self. Romans 6.6, 6, our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. You see, that new nature is that God-given capacity to understand God's Word and obey it and love God in the process. Right? Before we were saved, before we were, while we were unregenerate, while we had a heart that was uncircumcised, we were, what, alienated in mind. Right? Hostile to God. Spurgeon says that faith, whatever it, whenever it exists, in every case without exception, is the gift of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Faith in the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ, is always the result of a new birth and can never exist except in the regenerate. Right? Unbelievers don't have faith in God. In fact, they are hostile to God. They hate God. So God, that's what Paul, so that's what Paul's talking about here is that God coming in, He made us complete. He brought us in union with Him by, first of all, circumcising our hearts by removing the old nature, right? We needed a heart transplant. And that's what God did. So the question then people will ask will say, well, if I've been given a new nature, why do I still struggle with sin, right? Who will remove me from this body of death, as Paul says in Romans? Well, we still struggle because we still have the flesh. Inwardly, we've been transformed with a new nature, but we still have this body, the flesh. That's the great thing is when we are with Jesus, whether we die and later on given a glorified body or He comes back and we receive a glorified body, we will no longer have to struggle with sin. Right? We no longer have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life to tempt us to sin. So we still, we still will struggle from time to time, but we have the power within us in the form of the Holy Spirit to resist sin. We have a new nature that doesn't crave sinful things anymore as a lifestyle. That's what we say as believers. So we, look at, we look at Christians, we can see them, we know them by their fruit, right? Because the old nature will always crave sin. We'll, we'll never be able to resist those sinful desires. But as Christians with a new nature... A circumcised heart, we can say no to sin and yes to God, right? We, can, we, we actually do love Him and we want to obey Him. So that's the picture of circumcision, is that, is that it's a, a regeneration of the human heart, right? And so that's, that's how we have new life. It starts with a change in our hearts and our dispositions and our natures. And he continues and he says, not only is it, circumcision, the removal of flesh by the circumcision of Christ in verse 11. But he says that you've been buried with him in baptism. So he gives us another physical picture of, uh, to, to describe an inward reality, right? So baptism is the outward picture. Now, as believers, we're commanded to be baptized. Jesus' command to the apostles, to his disciples, were to go into all the world and preach what? Preach the gospel, and to baptize in them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? We're to baptize. Right? It's this outward sign of our, 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 of our new life and our joining with union with other believers. Right? So it's a, it's a physical picture. You, you're, you're an old person. Old person. Old as in old life, not old in age. Right? You're, you're an unbeliever. I'll put it that way. Right? You go down in the water. It's a picture of you being right, buried with Christ. Right? And then... Raised up to new life with Him. 
with all your sins washed away, right? It's a picture for us. And wherever we see it, and what a glorious thing it is, right? You go to baptisms and you hear testimonies of people who have, have repented of their sins and given their life to Christ and they're baptized, and, and you remember your own baptism. You can't help but be reminded of what God's done in your own life. It's like if you're married and you go to weddings that are done properly, weddings that are honor the Lord, and you can't help but remember your own wedding vows, right? You remember the promises you made to your own spouse. So it's an outward picture, right? The old nature has been buried, that nature that's hostile to God, right? So I would tell you, don't dig it back up, right? As Christians, walk obediently to His Word. If, if you have a new nature, then set your mind on the things above. Renew your mind through the Word of God. Focus on obedience to His will. So you've been, you've been buried with Him, and then He says what? He says in verse 12, he says, you were, you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God. You, you're born again through the faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Right? We believe that what? He has died for our sins. The basic foundation of the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect life, satisfied the demands of the law. Right? He died a sacrificial death in our stead. Right? Nailed to a cross. And then he was raised to new life and ascended to the Father, right? So being raised with Him. So it's that outward picture, right? Paul's, Paul's making this as plain as he can. He said, look, I, I want you to understand that you're complete. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You've been united with Christ. You've been circumcised. You've been regenerated. You have a new nature. You, you've been baptized with Him. You're in union with Him. Now, when we talk about in union with Christ... It is one of the most foundational doctrines. Hopefully, as you finish with Colossians, for the rest of your lives, God willing, every time you read in the Bible, in Him, you will think about your union with Christ. We have been joined with Jesus Christ in an, in an inscrutable union. Right? He indwells us. Holy Spirit indwells us. We are in Him. He's the vine. We are the branches. Right? The, the church, the body of Christ, is another picture of that union. We're also said to be the temple of God being built up to a spiritual temple, spiritual house. These are all pictures that Paul uses and the, the writers of Scripture uses to describe our union, how we are joined with Christ. Now, Augustus Strong describes it, as I've said a couple times, inscrutable, as it's hard to understand. It transcends the limits of human knowledge and experience, but it's also indissolutable. Oh, I say that real fast. We, we, can, uh, we can't dissolve it. How about that? God's grace can never be severed from us. It's a spiritual union in that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's a vital union in that we get our life from that union. It's organic in that it's complex and we're all joined together in one body, one union with Christ, with Him as the head. So we're talking about the foundational doctrine of our unity or our union with Christ. And we have faith in the working of God and that's how we're joined. That union becomes effectualized, right, when we become a believer, when we're regenerated, right? It becomes true in our lives. So we're, we're not only baptized, like buried in the sense, right? We're raised to new life. And then look at verse 13. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision in your flesh, he made you alive together 
with him. So he, this is the key. He made you alive. Like Frankenstein, it's alive. Made you alive, right? You were dead in your sins, right? Dead men, no, I was about to say tell no tales. Dead men cannot have eternal life, right? If you're spiritually dead, it does not equal spiritually alive, right? To put it another way, we, before you come to Christ, you were a spiritual zombie. How about that? You were the walking dead, right? You were dead spiritually without a hope in this world, right? You were a hater of God. You were, you were basically deceived, right? Blinded in your mind. You're hostile, alienated. We're dead in our trespasses. And so Paul says, he says, look, you were dead in your transgressions, in your sins, all those things that you knew to be right, either, and the things you did know in ignorance, you're still dead because you're still a sinner. You were separated from God. You were alienated, as he says over in Colossians 1. You needed that reconciliation. You were dead. And then he makes a more specific charge. He said, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's talking about Gentiles. Right? The Jews would have been circumcised. So he makes it plain as Gentiles, we have no hope, or we had no hope. In Ephesians 2, he actually describes this very well. Ephesians 2.11, he says, Remember therefore that you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision, and he puts it in quotes, by the so-called circumcision, in other words, by the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time, he's talking about pre-salvation, separate from Christ, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers to the covenants of the promise, you had no hope and without God in the world. That's who we were, dead in our trespasses, Gentiles without hope, right? We're not Jewish, I like a good pork sandwich just like the rest of you, right? We're We're Gentiles, who are alienated and minded, but He made us alive. Notice that God is the agent. It takes the living God to make a spiritually dead person alive. Right? God regenerates us, circumcises our hearts, right? gives us faith, illuminates our minds so that we can understand the Word of God. And we in turn right, believe, repent, and walk. So the, one thing to remember... In this context, the Greek and the Roman gods, they were indifferent. You ever read some of those stories, Greek gods? I mean, those Greek gods, they were, they were selfish, right? They were prideful, capricious, unjust. They were immoral, right? They resembled their creators, right? They're mankind. But the one true God is unlike anything else. That's what holiness mean, means, ultimately separated. And God, in His predetermined plan to save mankind from their sin and judgment, sacrificed His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He became the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. And then Jesus joined Himself and joined us to Himself in union, all together with Him. It is in Christ that you have new life. So that's the first way we're made complete. And that's Paul's argument here, right? He says, watch out. And you watch out for philosophy by knowing that Jesus is God and that what? You have been made complete. 
You have everything you need. You're not lacking. And you're not lacking because Christ has given you victory over the sinful nature that you had. Right? You don't have to, you don't have to listen to the temptations of this world. That's one thing about an unbeliever. They will always choose sin. We don't have to choose sin. So the other thing, so point one would be that you've been made alive. The second point is you have victory in Christ. Like look at verse, verse end of verse 13. He says, you have been forgiven or you have forgiven us all our transgressions. Notice that Paul includes us, right? Because he was talking about the Gentiles, and Paul is obviously not a Gentile. He's Jewish. But he includes himself in the forgiveness of sins. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy that he was the chief of sinners. <clears throat> and he says, 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Right? The forgiveness of sins. You want to remove that barrier so that you can be reconciled to God? It takes forgiveness of sins. What a joy that brings. Psalm 32, 1. How blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That penalty has been paid and you have victory over the penalty of sin. Now we think about forgiveness. We think about forgiveness and it's hard. I know I'm talking about on an individual, personal basis. Someone hurts you, sins against you, it, it's hard to forgive them, right? It takes, it takes an act of the will and it takes the, the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit in love that we forgive them. God, in His great love for us, forgives us of our transgressions, forgives us of all those things that separate us from Him so that we can be reconciled, Right? And we need to be forgivers ourselves. We need to show that love to others, even when it's hard and even when it's undeserved. And, you know, it's the gospel, as it's lived out in your lives, that not only demonstrates you're Christians, but gives those relationships true power and true meaning. For example, if you are married in this room, it's the gospel that will cause your marriage to last for 50 years, right? It's the gospel. Why? Because you have two people still struggling with the sinful flesh that are going to sin against each other on a daily basis. But what do we do as husbands? We do as wives. What do we do as believers? We what? We forgive them. Love covers a multitude of sins. We, we show them what? The gospel. We show them forgiveness. We have been forgiven much. How dare we not forgive someone little? Right? That's how our relationships will be Christ-like. Marriage relationships, friendships. Relationships in the body of Christ. We show the forgiveness that God has given us. Now, I had a, um, I had a little cartoon I saw this week that was interesting. And it, it had Jesus and the apostles, and they're all standing around. And Jesus you know, looks at them, and he's famous Matthew quote, and he says, Look, I say, you know, you say forgive seven times. I say you should forgive seven times seventy. And it has Peter in the background with his head down. He holds his head, and he says, Oh, no, I didn't think we'd have to do math. Math is hard. (laughs) As if forgiveness isn't, right? You see, so 
God has forgiven us, right? That's, that's what He's done, right? He's made us alive. And how He made us alive was for He forgave us of our sins. But look what else He does. He's canceled out, verse 14, the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us. What is that? Right? He's canceled out some debt, some decree. Well, what does that mean? Right? It's a certificate of debt. Certificate of debt is something that you're indebted to, that you owe. Right? We have to be careful we don't take this too far, but if you get a loan from your, from your bank for a house, for a car, right? you have a certificate of debt that you owe. Right? You've got into agreement. Right? A decree is a, is a public order that you have to obey. Right? They're two different things. So he says the certificate of debt is that what you owe to God as your creator, you owe Him what? Allegiance? You owe Him worship? Obedience? Right? And as unbelievers, we what? We didn't do any of those things. So we're, in, we're indebted to God in that sense. But not only that, we're indebted specifically because we had decrees against us. We had God's law, that we were, we were lawbreakers, we were transgressors, right? Trespassers, if you will, of God's law. We were deserving of punishment. We were deserving of His judgment, right? As His creatures, we did not show Him proper allegiance, proper obedience. We were indebted to Him, Right? And that debt has to be paid. And that debt is God's wrath. And that debt, apart from Christ, is Revelation chapter 20, and that's the lake of fire. Without your name written in the book of life, you will face eternal separation and judgment, God's wrath in the lake of fire in hell. Right? That's the, the penalty. Right? That's the justice that is deserved. I was having a conversation with a couple this week, and we were talking about God being the great judge. Right? What, we go before a judge, if somebody's done something to you or your family, murder, rape, thieving, whatever it is, somebody has done something, you, what do you want? You want justice. Right? You don't want the, the judge to look up there and go, you know what, I'm having a bad day or I'm having a good day and I love you and don't worry about the consequences, you're free to go. Right? We, we crave justice. Well, God is just. And he will judge sin. Every man owes debt to him. They've broken his decrees. They've broken his laws. They are lawbreakers. Gentiles who've broken the, the law of God he's written upon our hearts. Paul says that in Romans. Jews have broken his specific law. Parents, that's why it's so important to teach your kids the law, the Old Testament. Right? I, I teach my son Old Testament because I want him to understand the law. Because the Paul says in Galatians that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. It was given to show the Israelites their sinfulness. When we read the Ten Commandments and we say, All right, have I ever had any gods before you? Well, I've broken that one. Right? And you just go down the list. Right? We broke, broke the first one, we break all the rest of them. And we break them in our hearts. So I'm teaching my kids that they're lawbreakers so that they will understand their need for a Savior. We needed a Savior, right? Those decrees that, that debt and evil that, that we were committing just kept piling and piling and piling up. But praise be to God, what did He do? He canceled it out. You ever heard the expression, to wipe the slate clean, right? 
That's kind of a universal, universal English expression. It comes from the Bible. Ah, it comes from the King James, actually. It actually is a picture here. It says that he's canceled out the decrees. The canceling of a debt, when they would write on a, a tablet or parchment, they would write it with a specific ink that you take this parchment, that would usually be from a height of an animal or mixed with, uh, mixed with paper, some papyrus, and they would take this in order to erase it, they would dip it in water, and then they would wipe it off. And there you go, brand new sheet of paper, right? So the idea here is, is God has wiped the slate clean. He's canceled it out. He's, he's blotted it out. He's wiped away all that debt that we owed, right? He's canceled that debt that was against us. Isaiah 118 says, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. 1 John 1, 7. In the blood of Jesus Christ, it cleanses us from all sins. Right? So that the debt that we owed was wiped clean. It was canceled completely. The slate has been wiped clean. And not only that, not only was it canceled, but it was taken out of the way. See, God has taken that debt that was between us and Him. He's canceled it. He's, he's wiped it away. And not only that, He's removed it completely. He's forgiven and forgotten. And now there is no barrier between us and God. That's why Paul can say, you have been reconciled. Verse 22 of chapter 1. You have been reconciled. In his fleshly body through death. So I'm at Christ. In order to present you before him, for the Father, what? Blameless and beyond reproach. We can go before the Father because of the actions of the Son in that our debt has been wiped clean. Praise be to God. Right? A debt that we could never repay and a debt that we could never wipe clean on our own. And, yet, and what else did he do? Not only did he, he take it out of the way, he wiped it clean, but look at this. He nailed it. To the cross. What they would do with a cross is they would nail the charges of the particular person that was guilty on the cross. Do you remember what they nailed on Jesus' cross? The Jews hated it. The Romans did it as a mocking, but it was actually the truth. They hear what? Here is Jesus, King of the Jews. Right? The Romans were crucifying Jesus for as a political act for rebellion. Right? The Jews are like, no, 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 he's not king. The Jews don't put it up there. Romans were like, that's what we wrote. So be it. It was truth that he was and is the king of the Jews. That was his crime. Paul uses that and says, not only was that on the cross, but there was something else on the cross, even though we couldn't see it. It was our debt. It was our charges. They were nailed to that cross. So when that Jesus died and was buried, all that sin was buried with him. And when he rose from the death, he left all of our sin in the grave with himself, right? And when he rose from the grave, he left all that in the grave, and he rose, and we have new life in him. Well, that sin taken away, all of it blotted out, all of it, what? Nailed to the cross forever. So God remembers it no more. In fact, Romans 8, 1 said, There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Right? The law reveals our just condemnation. It is just. We broke His law. Jesus Christ, through His cross, has removed our sin. And I read the other day that 
Chase Bank. Have you ever heard of Chase Bank? Bank Chase, C-H-A-S-E, Chase. They are moving all of their banking from Canada. There's some new laws changes. They're based out of the United States. They've removed all their, their banks. They're closing the doors. They're shutting down all lending. What they did, it makes me wish I had a Canadian credit card, is they decided that rather than deal with the hassle of collecting payments from people who have credit debt, they just wiped it away. They said, you are forgiven all your debt. So all those Canadians that had Chase credit cards, their debt has been wiped away to be remembered no more. Right? That's a picture of Christ, right? All the debt that we owed is wiped away. You have a zero balance in Jesus Christ. But not only did He cancel out the debt and give us victory over our sin and the penalty... Well, look what else he did. This is a, such a great picture that Paul draws. He says, look, verse 15, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Right? So the rulers and authorities, and what he's talking about here are fallen angels, demonic powers. Right? Romans 6.12, just so I don't want you guys to take my word for it. Romans 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Right? It's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces. Right? So the rulers and authorities. Colossians 1.13 says, We have been transferred from the domain right, of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Colossians 1.13, right? But what did he do? He disarmed them. Disarming means to, to make, a, make powerless, right? To strip away all the weapons. Right? Think about it this way. What are the weapons that Satan uses against us? Well, first of all, if you're an unbeliever, he uses your sin nature. He doesn't have to really do a whole lot because the world's all going in the same path, right? Peter says it's the flood of dissipation, We're all heading in the same river. So Satan doesn't have to do a whole lot, but he's active in this world. Our sin nature causes us to sin. We can't say no, but that's been been taken away, right? We've been given a new nature. Well, it's also, what is another weapon? Well, another weapon is he has the decrees against us because Satan is our accuser. He has all those laws, all those things we've ever done that are evil. He has it, and he pulls them out, and he says, look, Look at this. Look at what these people have done. Paul talks about this in Romans, in Romans 8, 28. He says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be firstborn among the brethren. And these whom He predestined, He called. And, he, and those He called, He justified. And He justified, He glorified. And this is, this is the key. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He not also with Him, in union, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Yes, Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Talking about things in this earth. And then skip down. Verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. This is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? So Satan... Weapon of Satan has been taken away. He's been disarmed. He no longer has the accusations. Who can, when he says, who is it but God? God justifies. If God justifies, then it can be, it cannot be changed. Right? Satan can't try to steal your salvation or, or convince God, hey, look how look at all the bad stuff they are doing. God says, No, I've justified them. Doesn't mean we get to live as we want, right? And as a father, he does discipline us. But nothing can separate us from his hand. So, he's, so Satan has been disarmed. It's interesting in Revelation 12.10, it says that the accuser of the brethren, talking about Satan, has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. Isn't that an interesting thought? That Satan accuses you before God. Accuses you all the things that you do after you're saved. Satan accuses you. But what do we know? Romans said nothing can separate us from the love of God. Satan wants God to lessen his love for us and lessen his mercy. But what's what? We have Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. And all the Father sees is the Son and the Son's righteousness given to us because we're in union with Him. Right? The weapons have been taken away. Right? And then the last thing is that He has triumphed over them. Now, one of the things, we, when you think about a triumph, we think about a victory, and that's a good way to look at it. But the Romans would actually have a specific word called triumph. <clears throat> when you had a, a general that would engage in a battle, and he would win the battle, what he would do, he would have the opportunity to, to do a triumph. Right? It was a specific thing that he would have the opportunity to do. And what, it was, what he would do is he would march his army into Rome... And they would basically have a huge party, a parade, and people would line the, line the streets. It's a victory parade. But what would happen is, in the front of that procession, all the spoils and all the captives would be marched in a public display of the general's victory. That's the picture that Paul is talking about here. He says that, that not only Christ disarmed those rulers, those there's authorities, there's victory on the cross, but he triumphed over them. He marched them through the streets, and he's taking it in the figurative sense. He marched them through the seats, streets, parading them around. You have no power here over my saints. Right? What a great thought. Right? A public display. Through a disgraceful way to die, Jesus Christ bought victory. You no longer have to worry about your sin nature. You have victory over the power of sin in your life. You have victory over the penalty of sin. It's been paid. Your sins are forgiven. It's been nailed to a cross. It's been taken away, wiped clean. And you have victory over Satan. Now, one thing we don't have victory over yet, and that's the presence of sin. We still struggle with the flesh, right? But what a glorious day will be when Jesus Christ returns 
and we will be forever in His presence without the presence of sin. We can't imagine what it is. Can you even if you never thought process, even if you try to imagine relationships that aren't even slightly tainted by sin, right? In the body of Christ is the closest that we can get to, right? Loving each other unconditionally, caring about others, regardless if, if they return that care and kindness. That's the closest we can get that agape love to relationships without sin. It taints everything. Brethren, we have victory. We have victory over all of sin, sin's power, sin's penalty, and Satan who desires your downfall. It doesn't mean he won't tempt you to fail. Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion because he wants you to fall. And he accuses you before God. But praise be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are in union with Him and that we have intercessor, we have a great high priest, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So Paul has been addressing these false teachers and he's been doing it in a way that he's drawing their attention to the truth. The truth that is Jesus Christ is God and that you are complete in Him. In your union with Him, you have everything you need, right? You've been regenerated, circumcised in your heart. You've been baptized to new life. You have new life in Him. You have your sins forgiven and wiped away. Penalty has been paid and you have victory over Satan through Jesus Christ. He who is in us is what? Stronger, more powerful than he who is in this world. Brother, this is Paul's argument, right? He says, look, why would you turn to philosophy? Why would you turn to world systems? Why would you go to this empty deception and allow it to hold you captive? In verse 8, why would you do that when you have everything you need in Christ who is God and you have union with Him? You don't have to accept the world's ideas about anything. We have everything we need for life and knowledge. When it comes to marriage, it comes to finance, when it comes to education, when it comes to identity, as we talked about last week. The Word of God is truth, and we can trust it because Jesus Christ is sufficient, and the Word of God is sufficient in our lives. So today we've dealt with how you're complete in Christ. You have victory over sin's power, sin's penalty, and Satan's accusations because you have new life in Christ and you have victory in Christ. This is an exclusive work of Jesus Christ who is sufficient for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Oh, Lord, we thank You, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, that You are sufficient. We don't need the world's ideas on how to raise our families, or how to worship you, and how to love others, and how to deal with ills of society. We have the truth. We have the Word. Lord, I thank you for the body here. Lord, I thank you that we are in union. Lord, that this is a forever family because we are in union with you, and that union will last forever. Thank you that we have everything we need for life and godliness, and we are complete All the fullness of deity dwells in you and that you can be trusted because you are God. Lord, I thank you for your love, your kindness. Help us to walk with you. Help us to be watchful 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you all. Hope you have a great week. Go godliness.